Have you ever heard of Candyman? No. Well, his right hand is sawn off. He has a hook jammed in the bloody stump. And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times, he'll appear behind you, breathing down your neck. You want to try it? Welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. Today, as part of our Hallow Rewind series, we'll be discussing Candyman, starring Virginia Madsen. <laughs> you don't believe all that nonsense anyway, do you? I don't. Do you? No. Casey Lemons. Helen, what's the problem? Well, a woman died in there. Leave it. Xander Berkeley. These stories are modern oral folklore. And Tony Todd. You are not content with the stories, so I was obliged to come be my victim. Directed by Bernard Rose. Hello and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. I hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch. It's Gally in Glasgow. Number two, step forward. I I hear you're looking for a uh, uh, Candyman, bitch. It's Devlin in London. Number three, step forward. I hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch. It's Patrick from London. Number four, step forward. We hear you're looking for Candyman, bitch. It's Matt in South Korea. I was definitely number four. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, so welcome back listeners and uh, welcome back to our final episode of our Hello Rewind series. Patrick, your choice, Candyman. So please tell us, why have you chosen Candyman to end our series? Uh, I've got, I, I think I mentioned this before with you, but I, I've kind of got very lucky with all your picks because they've, uh, apart from The Crow, which I haven't seen, um, the other two, uh, I've been particularly remember watching with my parents um and this is no different so here i am again same story how did you see this film is my parents i actually did speak to mum and say why did you let me watch this when i was young (laughs) um (laughs) and she she said she thought i was kind of you know ready for it and i was going to watch it with mum and dad and i knew i was excited about it because this was one of those films I, i particularly remember when i was at primary school so I must have been about nine or 10 when I saw this, which is quite young. Um, and, but I remember it being that kind of office stereotype of around the water cooler. Everyone's talking about, you're going to watch this tonight. And I remember all the kids at school saying, you're going to watch Candyman. You're going to watch Candyman tonight. Candyman's on. And we did. And I remember the next day, about six of us lined up in the boys' toilets in front of the mirror, all daring each other to say <laughs> Candyman five times. And I remember fucking shitting myself. <laughs> there, looking in that mirror and all, none of us could do it. You know, all these, a line of kids there, we couldn't do it. We all ran off like giggling and kind of screaming to each other and having a laugh. And that's almost like a more prominent memory than the experience of the film because the film really I remember watching and being really scared. I think this is one of the first films that truly got under my skin, scared me shitless, uh, nightmare kind of stuff when I was a kid. And it was 
I'll wait until we talk about conclusions, but it was great to revisit this as an adult and to view it under a different perspective to, compared to just childish outright fear and <laughs> wondering why mum and dad let me watch <laughs> such a thing. Now I get to do it again with you guys. Uh, so Matt, um, do you have any, you didn't see it, did you? You haven't seen this before. This was a new one for me. I, I was aware of that Bloody Mary mirror aspect that you're talking about. Um, you know, the idea of saying the name five times in a mirror and he'll appear and kill you. I was aware of that kind of legend. So that's kind of cool. Uh, I was obviously aware of Clive Barker through the Hellraiser stuff. Uh, I was also aware of it through a scream quote. There's a bit in scream where Matthew Lillard says, after you branded him the candy man, no way his heart's broken. That's one <laughs> of the quotes from scream. I always thought, Oh, Candyman, yeah, I should watch that, but I never got around to it. So aside from a few clips on horror countdown documentaries or like online, uh, also our friend Sam Hollis used to talk about whenever I mentioned Candyman, he'd say, he'd say Candyman bitch. He'd say it like that and quote it. Um, so but that was about as far in as I kind of waded. Um, so, uh, it was a really an interesting pick, I think, finally sitting down to watch something that I'd always it always been on the periphery, but I'd never actually sat down and watched. So yeah. Uh, how about you, Devlin? Uh, I was convinced that I'd seen it and then I watched it last night. Genuinely have not. No way. <laughs> yep. What did you mistake it what? for then? Yeah. I, no, I just, just one of those weird false memories. I, I guess I was just, I'd assumed that I must have seen it when I was a kid just because everyone talks about it. The, the kind of general imagery of it, which is, Tony Todd with his very booming voice and the, I'd, I'd seen enough clips, I guess, that I knew that, you know, the bloody kind of stump with the hook in it. I knew there was bees involved. Um, and that was it. And, and in my head, I guess, in my little head cannon, I was convinced that I'd seen it, but maybe as like such a, a, a <laughs> head awful, cannon. <laughs> yeah, you ever have a head cannon, you know, where it's like, yep, seen that one, ticked it off. And then, uh, yeah, turns out absolute bullshit. Never seen it. Wow. So oh, well, that's uh, going to be really interesting then. That was, uh, uh, honestly, it was, it was, uh, it was quite the, quite the first impression. And much as, as Matt just said, um, kind of really happy you picked it because otherwise I would have gone through even more <laughs> of my life. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, that's in Candyman. Have a fuck. Where are you going? Uh, well, I'd seen it a lot when I was younger, uh, but it wasn't introduced, uh, by my parents. This was a kind of late night. I had a TV in my room. From a young, an early age, mainly to just keep me, I didn't sleep. I was quite a hyper child. I'd seen it then, and a bit like Patrick, it scared the bejesus out of me. But I definitely had placed it in the substandard slasher category. And revisiting it this week, um, you know, without sort of getting the sandwiches out of the the foil, um, yeah, I definitely that's that's that opinion has, has changed. But uh, I, I always thought of it as a kind of like yeah, kind of knockoff Freddy. Just like everyone else, I'll, I'll echo it. I was really thankful. And also because the picks that we've had for this Halloween season have been, not to say they've been obscure, but we've sort of tried to avoid uh, the, the obvious. And Candyman feels like uh, feels like an appropriate end to a really good selection of films, no matter what we thought of them. Um, so, yeah, uh, that, that was that was my experience with the film back back whence. Yeah, so one of the things that I wanted to get straight into is, uh, and I was really interested in all of your opinions, because I had no real oversight or I'd never followed the career of Bernard Rose to the point where I thought it was a Frenchman. So 
<laughs> doing the doing the small but it, just, it was the banana that's banana rosé rose. I thought it was I know, yeah. I thought it'd be French, yeah. Um, I did really bad. Uh, jump into conclusions. He's a, he's a great summer wine director. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Killing um, on the on the deck of a small boat. Yeah, so to find out that he's just kind of a British eccentric who'd come from music videos and, you know, followed the sort mm. of Ridley Scott route, um, bit of a thespian, likes to do small character pieces. It was all fascinating and... Um, I don't know. Maybe we'll, I'll save it for when we're talking about the film in in real detail. But the the little bit of research that I did do um, led me to believe that he'd kind of optioned the short mm-hmm. story by Clive Barker, who yeah. is sort of for those that don't know, he's sort of our Stephen King in the UK. Um, you know, I, I love Hellraiser. I'm surprised not. I didn't pick it, but um, you know, maybe next year. Um, but yeah, he, that's that's Clive Barker, and it was a short story called Forbidden. Yeah, from the books of blood. And Bernard Rose optioned it and then adapted it. And, and one of the big fundamental changes from the short story is that it was based in a council estate in, well, they say it's Liverpool, but it's a sort of no name. Or it's given a name, but it's not actually in Liverpool, but it's based on his experiences. And they move it to America and they move it to the, the urban area of, of mm. Chicago. And that was a big change. So, I mean, Patrick, do you have any any more on that kind of adaptation of the original source material? I've got I've got the DVD. I don't think any of you else have. It has quite a nice little uh, behind the scenes documentary on it, which is called The Candyman Mythos, uh, Sweets to the Sweet. And I quite like listening to the producer and the way he tells it because he seems to, like really into this story. He's part of um, a production company called Propaganda Films, um, who it was pitched to. <clears throat> And Bernard Rose is quite surprised that they asked him to write the screenplay, ha- having optioned it because you know, looking at a new location because he hadn't really written anything before. So there's interest in that. And they seem to, have, what was quite cool, and I think it's quite telling of the film that he built quite a good working relationship with Clive Barker, who, who um, was, was involved story-wise as well. So that that's quite cool, um, the British connection there. And it's very odd to think of, you know, two British men going... Uh, taking a story from Liverpool and transporting it to Chicago rather than an American director, you know, who, who knows the area, which I always thought was quite interesting watching this. D- Dabley, was it you? Did I go to the cinema with you to see The Handmaiden? Uh, I, the, the Park Chan-wook film? Yeah. Uh, no, I have no, seen right. I, went to... I think we talked about it. And yes. that, that's another example of taking a story and finding a perfect setting and location for it because the handmade it was set in um in england and yes they took the story to yeah. korea and i remember watching it and i without really thinking about it doing any research i would never have known that story wasn't originally of that location mm-hmm. uh you know the relationship with japan was it japan and korea yeah, I think between, it was japan between and korea, the two of them. during the occupation years Mm. And then watching this, I think there's a little bit of a masterstroke to set it at that time and place in Chicago, uh, in Cabrini Green, this really interesting projects area uh, and to find somewhere that was quite, uh, pertinent to, to thematically for, for the story galley, um, mm. which is what they kind of explored at the time as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the fundamental change as well is in the character, right? So I think in. Yeah. Clyde Barker's story, he's almost like a Pennywise character. Um, the, there's, the, the film, he's called Candyman, and the only bit of candy we see is um, the sort of, the, the, the residents of Cabrini Green leave a sort of tribute 
with razor blades and the chocolates that looked like quality streets uh, from from what I saw. Um, a little bit of a British connection, but yeah, he he was described as like pale with red lips, and you know, it felt like more of a, a sort of more colourful character. Whereas obviously, one of the, the other big changes is making Candyman this sort of son of a slave uh, African American in Chicago, which is obviously perfectly apt for the area and the you know transposing the story but you know fundamental changes to the original source material and like you said i would never have thought having not done the research or a little bit of reading on it i would have just assumed that Candyman was a, a studio production based off a you know probably some short story that i'd never heard of and it's really surprising i, I didn't know any of it i didn't even know it was a clive barker story it is kind of surprising and a bit of a you're right, I guess a bit of a masterstroke considering how well it was all kind of woven through the texture of the story that it's surprising that it didn't um originate in the in the area where it was set. But um uh just yesterday and today I I I, I was interested in that setting, so I took a little kind of look around. I, I actually listened to a really interesting podcast episode which was um which is called History Uncovered. It was a little short, maybe only ten, fifteen minutes long. Um, that was talking about, um, the real life story behind what inspired the Candyman myth. Um, and what I guess is interesting is because having not read the Clive Barker short, I don't know how much of that, um, comes from the Clive Barker story, but certainly the, the story of people, uh, coming through the, um, the medicine cabinets in the in the apartment blocks is 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 true and was inspired by a, a real story that actually happened in the latter part of the 1980s so there was the the story we hear of Rufy Jean who was found killed and had uh um the the cleaners talk about as happening in Cabrini Green uh actually did happen to a woman called Rufy Mae McCoy not in Cabrini Green, but in another project uh, elsewhere in the city, they transposed it over largely because Cabrini Green, at that point, by the by the late eighties, um, had developed a kind of a reputation as being the most dangerous neighborhood in Chicago, which is kind of notoriously one of the most dangerous cities in America. Um, the kind of prevailing idea is that the reason for its notoriety is based not solely on the crime rates, although the crime rates were extraordinarily high but more so that um the neighborhood was built basically at the intersection between two of the more wealthy neighborhoods in chicago rather than it being kind of um you know ghettoized off a completely different part of the city is it it really, gold coast is that gold coast is, is one of them yeah which is really nearby um um I've, I've not been to chicago for a really long time I when i was a kid i used to have some family there that's sort of since moved out, but I, mean, I remember really loving visiting it as a kid and having no idea about this kind of, uh, this terrible reputation that it had until much later. Um, but the, the real story of Ruthie Mae McCoy was that she was a, um, a woman who struggled with schizophrenia and she was kind of no, kind of well known around the, the project for being kind of a bag lady she would shake a stick at people and she would launch into these kind of fits of rage and stuff. And, uh, she was at, as unfortunately a, a, a huge number of residents of the Cabrini green project. She was a, um, uh, a single parent 
uh, I think it was estimated that I think two thirds of the residents of Cabrini Green around by, by this time were children. And the vast, vast majority were single parent households with only a mother living in them. Um, and, uh, what had happened was that, um, when they built the, the blocks, which were initially built as kind of a sort of utopian social, uh, uh, project to, to try and improve on the terrible social housing that, that they replaced. Apparently that, that neighborhood was kind of a little bit accursed. It was known as a, um, it was known as Little Hell. In the, the, the residents loved it when they first moved in, didn't they? They, they yeah. never had such space, central heating, a fridge. And yeah, water it was um, like that. It was uh, uh, apparently it was it was a real kind of um, it was a real step up, and it was you know it was uh, they named it after a, a trade union leader and social reformer that was uh, William Green, and there was uh, also named after an Italian American nun. It was actually a saint, Saint Francis Cabrini, and that's uh, kind of the. The aspirational nature of it was that it was going to be trying to help people, but unfortunately, neglect set in, and essentially, that um, within a couple of decades, the um, uh, that the residents were largely left to their own devices. And what unfortunately had happened was that um, the way they built the blocks uh, initially, they built it for convenience, which is that they had just built these huge um, spaces between the apartments for uh, plumbing access and that all they had covered them with as you see in the in the film they literally show you it's 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 all true that you just pull a medicine cabinet out and you can access from one from one apartment to another sometimes even from one floor to another and uh, the real ruthie uh ruthie mccoy she had started to kind of turn her life around she was studying for a ged she had applied for a disability benefit which she had been granted and she'd been granted it with a large back pay so she had actually um uh, for somebody who was struggling on on something like $150 a month, she had a windfall of uh, well over $1,000, and unfortunately, everyone in the uh, in the project knew about it. And and it was true. Two two young men had crawled through the space in her apartment, and they uh, shot and killed her. And um, the way I'd heard it was that um, John Malkovich, who is a Chicago native, I believe, certainly a Chicago resident had expressed some interest in the story and he'd got in contact with a journalist who'd covered the story really extensively. And then the journalist says that no more contact was ever forthcoming. And then suddenly what around four or five years later, there's this, uh, this Hollywood production being made with tremendous similarities to the things he was recording, uh, uh, reporting on. So um, I don't know if, if, if ever that was mentioned, whether there was involvement of John Malkovich or whether that was just, another entertainment industry professional who was interested in the story, but uh, it, it's intriguing to see that story then be synthesized with, you know, the fictional plot that Clive Barker came up with to, to end up with. In the seventies, there was a, there's a sitcom called good times, which kind of made Cabrini green, very famous uh, in American TV, which showed off what Devlin was talking about, the kind of prosperity of it, the new housing project that was, you know, worked for a very short time at the beginning and which was made by someone who actually, who lived there uh, as a TV show at the time. And you compare it to this. And I think the, the idea that Bernard Rose and Barker, they, wanted to explore a building that would become akin to, you know, your haunted house on top of the hill, your 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 castle in Transylvania, that those kind of buildings that are horror staples of the past is now in a more modern uh, setting. And of course, with all that notoriety, it was kind of a very good setting for it. 
Well, it's the right instinct as well, because let's be fair, um, you know, none of us have uh, grown up with a silver spoon in our mouths. And uh, you it's far more scarier when you can identify with that kind of building. I mean, we'll get into it, but the Cabrini's green scenes are some of the strongest in this film. Um, and it's partly down to the fact that it's like, yeah, I would be petrified. And it isn't just because I'm worried about gangs. It's just that whole, the ambience of the place is just terrifying, isn't it? It's just horrible. It's yeah. in real disrepair and it feels real. There's an authenticity to it. Whereas that spooky castle. It, it's a character, house, isn't it? Yeah, it really, it really is. And well, the fact that we don't see Candyman for the first 45 minutes, it's, it's, I think it's Cabrini Green that, that drives, you know, that is the impending threat, not necessarily tony todd because we don't see him there was another reason for making him african-american i think like the class barriers in in the usa are more race-based than england um you know if you look at the north of england you know we still have a class system but it's very very different and you know slavery being the real history of the united states it kind of makes makes sense to go with that And, and another thing that was tied to the short story that i found was uh this idea of doubting the Candyman's existence causes him to come forward. That's one of the things that they took uh, from the original short story. They did not, uh, they had to invent the five times summoning um, aspect for the, for the screenplay of the feature. Right. But um, the, the, the short story did have the, the, this concept that they followed through with, with his existence, uh, doubting his existence bring, brings him out. You know, he, he begins to, um, you know, really f- feel like he needs to defend um, whatever people are saying about him or, or disbelieving the myth. The urban legend is kind of in its infancy at this point as well and hadn't really been done in cinema to, to this degree. I think it was born in the 60s or 70s to dispel, uh, to, to compare against um, the, the legend or the legend, the myth, uh, <laughs> compared to uh, an urban legend um, and the mm. two... The hook for a hand is a very popular one, isn't it? That's mm. always been around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a mashup, isn't it? The Bloody Mary, um, which mm-hmm. is just something that gets passed down. You know, I remember being told about that in sort of playgrounds and from, yeah. from just like older cousins who were trying to scare me. You know, the, the hook for the hand is another one. And what they're, they're normally, they're normally to try and keep you in check. Don't do this. Otherwise this will happen. Also, um, Barker's grandma told a story. He was on, uh, the documentary that Patrick recommended just a second ago. Um, there was a story in, in Liverpool that she used to, uh, kind of perpetuate this myth that, um, you know, don't go into a public toilet because there's a man and he'll it, cut your, cut your bits off if you go in there. <laughs> and that's probably, um, Barker said, like, probably the, uh, the beginning of, of uh, how Candyman was born like in his mind before it, it was fully formed. But that was one of the, the seeds of the idea, I think. Right. Well, Patrick, would you please give us a plot summary for Candyman? The legend first appeared in 1890. Candyman was the son of a slave. His father had amassed a considerable fortune from designing a device for the mass-producing shoes after the Civil War. Candyman had been sent to the best schools and had grown up in polite society. He had a prodigious talent as an artist and was much sought after when it came to the documenting of one's wealth and position in society in a portrait. It was in this latter capacity that he was commissioned by a wealthy landowner to capture his daughter's virginal beauty. Well, of course, they fell deeply in love, and she became pregnant. (laughs) 
poor Candyman. The father executed a terrible revenge. He paid a pack of brutal hooligans to do the deed. They chased Candyman through the town to Cabrini Green, where they proceeded to saw off his right hand with a rusty blade. No one came to his aid, but this was just the beginning of his ordeal. Nearby there was an apiary, dozens of hives filled with hungry bees. They smashed the hives and stole the honeycomb and smeared it over his prone, naked body. Candyman was stung to death by the bees. They burned his body on a giant pyre and then scattered his ashes over Cabrini Green. And now, in 1992, speak his name five times in a mirror and Candyman will appear. With his hook for a hand, he'll split you from your groin to your gullet. Dismiss him at your peril. Wow, that was quite sad. Yeah. Well, the idea of that, I didn't want to give the plot synopsis fully. I, I, I want, mm. you know, I, I really want people to see this film, but we spoke about the idea of the urban legend, and I think that that monologue that we hear from uh, Doctor Purcell, the character mm. in the film, does a really good pound job. shop Stephen Fry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he he's in the second film actually um, uh, as well. Of course he is. And well, he's the only one who survives on that table. So yeah, it's not, not surprising. <laughs> well, actually, is it? the director's on the table as well. Banner Rose is uh, in the corner drinking wine. You only see him in the wide shot. Of course he is. Not Rose though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I just I, I think that's a really good way to set up the the idea of Candyman because this film is about the fear of what's real and what's not and mm. is it dreams or reality and i i think um this is where urban legend this is why i wanted to watch it as a kid and was scared of saying his name in the mirror because this is the urban legend you hear this story it shits you up and you mm-hmm. the uncertainty is kind of the wonder of it well isn't it interesting as well that there isn't a flashback well i originally wanted that too i wanted to see uh the origin story and then uh that was one of my criticisms early on. And I realized, I, I sort of thought, what are they doing? Like lingering on her listening to this story instead of, you know, actually seeing it. But then when you think about what's happening, that's the first time in the movie that you see her kind of spellbound and sort of struck by this, this tale and the lighting changes on her eyes. It kind of highlights her eyes. And it's the same expression that she has later in, in the movie where it's just her and, and Candyman and she's got tears in her eyes and she's kind of enraptured and un, under his spell. So I think it's it's more about her in that moment than than his backstory necessarily. Plus in the second movie they do show it. Yeah. And it's rubbish. So you don't <laughs> it, it is, isn't it? it? It looks awfully cheap as well, Matt. Yeah. I think, yeah. In the second it, one. It's better in the imagination, isn't it? Yeah. Which is about the power of of myth, isn't it? And you can't have a myth mm-hmm. if you are sh- like film is uh as much as sometimes it can go into dream sequence and fantasy sequence it's still seeing things on screen being represented yeah. by actors in costumes in sets in in real locations so and it should be unique to you like you should fill in those gaps you know what's really strange i found it deeply meditating watching this film it was almost spiritual i felt like i was at church a little bit it might very well well be the music but the whole ambiance of the film like it starts off with the those shots that bernard rose has of uh sort of like a tracking shot but from directly above it's great bridge, isn't oh it? it's amazing but it also it kind of uh, like i'm not a massive horror fan but yeah i've seen the shining so part of it made me think well this feels like uh, a different way of doing what stanley kubrick was doing in the shining 
with the music playing and us kind of sweeping in and out. And he, he uses it a fair few times, but I just thought, wow, I've never seen a shot like that before. Well, I don't think you ever had at the time either, Gally. It was a new technology called a Skycam. Uh, with a variable lens. So what is it on a blimp? It's on a helicopter, but it, you know, it's essentially a gimbal and it's, a, it's the stabilizing at the time you'd never really seen. You'll seen those shots a bit shaky. And this was, I mean, it's that Grand Theft Auto, original Grand Theft Auto, like idea, isn't it? And it's a very effective mm. way to open it. And so incredibly well timed as well. Like yeah, the, the movements basically keep like the cars completely still, right? It's mm-hmm. like a. Uh, it's it's going at exactly the same pace as the traffic, and then the, yeah. the, the credits come in, and they just sit. And I don't know. I, yeah, it was. Well, I, I was uh, immediately struck by that that the quality of the photography from the beginning, like the first several shots, are, are the best in the movie, as far as I'm concerned. Like, there's the long helicopter one you're talking about through the intertwining junctions, and then it cuts to this wall of bees immediately after yeah, that and, and that's swarm, that's very striking the, the, um, there's a murmur of yeah. bees and then Af- the after that it's the chicago skyline with the swarm that you're talking about and it's that's kind of echoed at the end with the fiery <laughs> bee embers rising from the bonfire so just setting it up immediately with that philip glass music uh it becomes like this amazing thing that grips you right from the beginning mm-hmm. I think it had a hard time following it actually that there's some of the photography later isn't isn't perhaps as as striking it's it's kind of solidly done but it, it really grips you from the beginning with the first three or four images. Well you talked Matt as well about the way that Virginia Madsen's um photographed and it reminded me a lot of Janet Lee in Psycho the way she was styled um I mean, she's forever smoking. I think it's every single yeah. scene. But, um, the, the, they all are in that restaurant, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are, aren't they? But there's a, there's like a beam of light that constantly, it's like a soft focus. Yeah. Every time there's a, a close up of her, it feels mm. like I'm in a dream. And this is what I meant when I was like, I feel like I'm sort of, I just, I don't know. It was, it was really strange because as a child, I found it deeply scary, like really well, scary. Well, I think it's playing into this, this idea that, it, that she could be the killer. I think it's all, it's all connected to that. It's, it's part of that, isn't it? It's the other reading. It's, it's what, what is she constructing and, and what is, what is real? It's a very deliberate thing, Gally. You know, we, we even spoke about in the flyer the way Gina Davis was, uh, lit, which is almost classically in, you know, that, that kind of Mortish Radham's lighting, so to speak. And with this, with, um, Helen, the idea was you'd see that lighting and she had very, she cut her hair, she got ready for the role and she had very minimum to no makeup on apparently. But for those dreamlike being seduced sections, so to speak, they'd put a little bit of mascara on and do her up more mm. to make it more striking, which is. And it's got that real kind of gauze promised over the, over the lens. Massively. Like you got- and it's, it's all to do with her. I suppose that it's the romantic element of either she is falling in love with in love with something physical or like the same way you fall in love with something in a book you become enamored and obsessed by it like um you, you know like matt's obsession with quentin tarantino after you watched from dust to dawn you, you see that's out. what my eyes look like when i watch quentin <laughs> but when he's acting you, you seek out more don't you and, and she's a character that seeks out more and the deeper she goes in the more helpless she becomes in entranced in love uh enamored or besotted whichever way you want to read it i was just gonna say do you think that that um becomes more and more prevalent after she gets uh uh knocked in the head with a big hook 
because I guess I always think of that as like the the real turning point in the film. There's the dinner wow. table scene, of course, but that's the the, the verbal that's drinking her in, and then right. after it, it kicks off, and it's more it, it, <laughs> talking to Bernard Rosen. I think Galley said he's eccentric. When they meet in the parking lot, which I I love this introduction to to Candyman. When it cuts back to her and she has the flash, I think she has a little flash to the to the Cabrini Green building. And mm. when you look at her, her eyes are kind of bloodshot. She's this lighting that we've spoken about that's dreamy and romantic, and she's a little bit of makeup. Apparently, Bernard Rose actually used some forms of hypnosis and hypnotized <laughs> Virginia Madsen in these scenes, and she got a bit fed up with it by the end of shooting and asked for it no longer. But he, it was completely the idea that she, whenever she is with interacting with Candyman, that that's the state she's in. Be my victim. I am the writing on the wall, the whisper in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Can I point out one one moment of absolute like I had to do a, a leap of faith right at the beginning of the film? Bernard Rose is trying to convince me that Ted Raimi is a leather bound <laughs> hard man. And yeah. it is outrageous. I mean, it's <laughs> just went off a very similar in, in um, Twin Peaks season two. Yeah. Oh, what is he doing? Is that the he's hard thing cool but a kid bad boy? When he starts drinking and laughing to himself on the sofa on his yeah. own. <laughs> and it just when he's with the girl as well, you just don't buy it, do you? No, I'm just no. like, she's taking a top off and I'm expecting yeah. him to put his jumper on. Do you think it was kind of intentional to make that look a little bit kind of goofy and almost like a Nightmare on Elm Street style That's what I was going to say, David. It's, it's a traditional horror scene, isn't it? Yeah. The teenagers, the, you know, they shouldn't be, it, it goes back to horror where you shouldn't have sex, you know, rules of horror don't have sex, social yeah. die in the film. And of course, they're about to indulge in that and yeah, I, I think so definitely. kind of it, it makes for a great contrast because you know usually you are used to seeing these these kind of teenagers you know that we as an audience maybe are supposed to see of as being quite um naive and, and that they'll you know they they fall into these situations by their own kind of naivety or hubris or whatever and then you compare it to our lead characters who are um adults married people Academics, See, academics, no less. Yeah, that um, it's it's the uh, it kind of it silos that off and says that nobody's really safe because you're outside of the 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 kind of what is it ninety two. So if you think like the the eighties have had a really distinct flavor of horror for for quite some time, maybe it's just trying to sell its stall as being like, you know, this is uh this is going to be a little more cerebral and thus a little more. Hard but this is a a construct too, isn't it? That's not entirely real necessarily, that scene as well. It's, it's a, a re- recounting of a story. But going on to what you were saying there, Devlin, about the, the sort of the normal beats of, of this type of horror film slashes with teenage characters. There's a, there's that element of, um, it's not the same as going up the stairs when you should be going out the front door, but the fact that she continues, I think it's a friend mm-hmm. who sort of warns her. There's constant warnings about, Delving yeah. too deep into Candyman. She crosses the Rubicon. 
Well, that's the, it's the Scooby-Doo trope, isn't it? They're, they're messing with something they don't understand and they just keep persisting into it. And that's what gets them into to trouble. And also it's the people who don't believe in Candyman mm-hmm. that get it because, you know, yeah. Candyman doesn't care about the people who are scared of him. That's fine by him. Yeah. It's the people who say the words into the mirror and therefore demonstrate that, that his uh, legend isn't, isn't effective. And that's why he has to come out of the shadows and, you know, attack. Well, Matt, when, when you're saying that, I think there's a, kind of a big religious aspect to this film as well. Um, mm-hmm. There's some terminology in the film like congregation and believers. Uh, and, you know, he, Candyman is this figure that's really affecting a community, like a strong following in this area. Um, they, there's an interesting quote when she says there's a community that attributes the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure which Mm. could be read as god or jesus christ uh, Mm -hmm. essentially and i found that very interesting and the lair of Candyman, you'll call it is kind of dressed as a church in its way and there's almost there's murals to him and offerings uh and the bonfire with the guy forks kind of comparison there if you're i read that as like an offertory uh, almost a sacrificial type thing uh to Candyman. well they leave i I said before patrick as well they leave tributes don't they the The sweets the the sweets yeah Yeah. i think the music plays a big part too with it's almost like lurch from the adams family's harpsichord playing and you've got like all the church organs and choir singers and yeah, it's it's all like this piano motif that ke- that continues. I think that all ties into a, some kind of religious commentary. It's a very layered film here, and the fascinating thing about it is, when do you recall uh, an African American leading man in a horror film, whether mm. a slasher, the, the antagonist, the romantic figure? It's kind of not been done before or since, and. Uh, you know, we've got Jordan Peele doing some pretty interesting work now and Get Out and Us mm. and remaking this as well, which I hadn't considered when I picked this film, but um, I'm kind of glad for the coincidence. The only one I could think of, because you were saying, has it been done before, was Blackula. But I couldn't, I was the same. I was like, okay, I'm now seeing this film in a very different light in 2020. And I'm like, have I actually seen a black character play a villain this way before i couldn't think of one i I guess i was just always under the impression that because i'd seen this referenced as you know in the in the history of black horror i always just assumed bernard rose was a black filmmaker Mm. and it really surprised to find out that he was a youngish british guy um because um I mean, when it gets into representations of race, there's there's plenty mm-hmm. to pick into. But one thing that did come up was that um, uh, there were critics who argued that oftentimes in in genre cinema and horror cinema, black people are shown as being um, superstitious, yeah. and they congregate in numbers, yeah, that, and it's all criticisms yeah, it's of this a, film, wasn't it, at the time? Yeah, it's it's a negative negative trope. And I guess I, I read a, a a book a while back. It was about um, kind of the history of voodoo in the United States and the idea of where voodoo came from, that it was, you know, kind of traditional, traditional religion, which when um, people were brought from the West Indies islands into the United States, um, when they were slaves, they would have to hide their traditional religions. And what they did was that they basically converted their religions 
which is to say the traditional kind of uh, uh, gods and and other representations that they originally worshipped, what they did was they transferred them onto Christian deities, usually picking quite obscure saints um, to map out like an alternative version of their previous religions, but using Christian iconography. And I just, that was what I thought of when you were mm-hmm. talking, Patrick, about like the idea of, you know, they're being quite a, almost like a Christian, like a, a heavy Gothic Christian aspect to it, but all kind of just off kilter and just feeling kind of unique and unusual. Well, when you said Galley, um, when you talked about Blackula a second ago, it was, I, I wrote that down as, as that there should have been more uh, comedy in this movie. I thought I didn't really laugh. There was no, not nothing to make me laugh at all. Nothing to lighten anything. It's very played very straight. And I noted that down as a negative. And then when I thought about the blackula aspect, that this idea of having a straight, mm-hmm. um, uh, black antagonist, that that's a really interesting thing that had never been done before. I don't think so. The, the idea that there's no humor in it is actually probably a positive and quite a uh, progressive thing. I think you get that a lot more as well, Matt. It's strengthened by Tony Todd and his performance. He oh, he's yeah. kind of a classically trained actor and the, the director got it's very Shakespearean, isn't he? He, he did, that's his background. He, he does. He did mm. Shakespeare in America as, as part mm. of his background and training. And, you know, he's six foot five, he's very imposing, but that deep voice and straight delivery adding to the poetry of the dialogue is, I think, quite iconic here. Uh, Devlin, you mentioned there are some criticisms. There's a black director called Carl Franklin and he was, uh, he was speaking out against Candyman in 92 when it came out. He said that okay. uh, it contained a lot of racial stereotypes and one of them was the, the one you mentioned. He, he also said, uh, there was this idea of a white savior. Mm-hmm being required um yes. that he he objected yeah. to there's uh the, the like you said the overly suspicious um s- sorry overly superstitious black community and this idea that they condemn or pay tribute in mass and uh one other thing he said um it puts forth it, he said it puts forth the idea that black men prefer to pursue white women too, and he really kind of objected to that. I think right. he even criticised though Candyman's jacket as a black exploitation kind of motif, the big fur uh-huh. long jacket as well, which yeah, you know, that that was a collaboration for Tony Todd. He kind of picked that look and, and worked on it, and I think that was mm. you know an unfair thing really because you're creating a character right. you shouldn't dismiss or celebrate culture. That the the idea of them being overly susp- uh, superstitious. You've got the cleaners, isn't it? It's the scene when the yeah. cleaners initially yeah. speak to Helen. But I, and this is not to say right or wrong, but does Stephen King not do that with every yokel in his in his stories, where they're always these small town kind of idiots that have got crazy yeah. superstitions? It's kind of the same thing. I mean, I do wonder. It's not to say. Um, that there's obviously this horrible representation, a misrepresentation, and Bernard mm. Rose is a white Englishman, and what does he know about uh, race in America? But I almost think that that means that he was able to just go, I'm not going to be. It's baked into the film, there's no doubt, because you can't get a, can't get away from it. But I don't think it's the central theme that runs through it. It's just a, it's just an a, another another kind of. Uh, thing to unpick and, and unpack. I, I would like to talk about the kind of the, the idea that Candyman is a, a symbol of reminding you of the history of America. You know, it, it's it, he is a stark mm. um, yeah. 
is a representation, a reminder of America's past. Oh, this is my notes here, uh, which is slavery. You know, and the horror of his actions is akin to the horror that bestowed upon him when he he was murdered. And you know, if you're dismissing Candyman, or if I read it there, Candyman read slavery. If you're dismissing him, he's coming back with a vengeance to remind you. And I think it's that there's that element in it that he, he's a resurrection of something that's unspeakable and unspoken in America that. As Devlin taught us about Cabrini mm. Green, this outskirts project where people are kind of put away and forgotten about, who are predominantly black African Americans, where as you see, Helen is in the same kind of building, but you know, dressed up and tarted up and looked after for white people who've got the money to pay for it. I think Candyman is is a representation of that. Yeah, just just a reminder not to forget and to understand. Uh, what it is, I and mean, that may be more pertinent in 1992 um, than anyway. Of course, now mm. I'd love to see what Peel does with the new mm. Candyman. And we have- I saw a real parallel between what happens with Candyman's past. To me, felt like it was progress yeah. in check at the time. You know, his backstory of uh, a, a person who comes from nowhere, who gets, who rises through um, the so into the social elites, and then his biggest crime is whoa, whoa, whoa. You dare try and uh, fall in love with a white woman, and then that's when he—that's when he gets, um, you know, that's when he gets horribly killed. Did you read any uh, allegories into it, particularly like anything clearly at all? Uh, I, I've got one here about white liberal fear and and white guilt, and that mm. ties in, I guess, to what Patrick yeah. was saying about uh, the past, America's past, and, and you know, can we ever really move? forward from it but also like kind of against that you know the professor from terminator 2 spells it out when he says uh it's an unself-conscious reflection of the fears of urban society now whenever you hear the word urban you kind of you think ah okay what are they what are they saying there so you know it, it is it is it white guilt or are, is it still fear of um fear of the black male in uh, in 1992 they're the two sides of the same coin right surely there's uh there's there's a reflexive fear and then there's the guilt associated with the past with being, of dealing with it you're programmed to feel that fear gally you said it 45 minutes we don't see Candyman, but the fear is instilled in us from the location for from the legacy of it and the community fear. everyone's yeah. talking about him which is always better that's what you want well isn't it but isn't it wonderful how in 2020 i mean i never even knew what the term white privilege meant mm. until probably the last <laughs> couple of years. But that scene when um, Helen and Bernadette enter Cabrini Green could not be a more perfect example of a scene of white privilege. What's with the arsenal, Bernadette? We're only going eight blocks. You're the one who got us dressed up like cops. I just said dress conservatively. No, we look like cops. Why are you trying to scare me? I'm not trying to scare you, Helen. I just want you to think, okay? The gangs hold this whole neighborhood hostage. Okay, let's just turn around then. Let's just go back and we can write a nice little boring thesis regurgitating all the usual crap about urban legend. At the time when I watched it, I was very enamored and adored Edward Scissorhands, uh, which came a couple of years before this. And, you know, while that's more family friendly, I think this adult romance and gothic kind of romantic uh, traditional storytelling that's woven within it, within the horror film. I think, um, I think that's done really well. That was, that was very much a part of their, their, um, 
their idea making this film. You know, it's not a slasher film. There's a low body count. But the relationship between the two is the driving force, really, isn't it? Well, early on, I was uh, really concerned about that. I didn't like it at all. I, I think the the romantic aspect got in the way. And I, I it was one, I should say, like before my conclusion, I, I had a really negative response to this I'm, the first time I watched it. And the second time I watched it, it wasn't until <laughs> you just kept going until you got well, a part. Well, what I did was I felt I felt like uh, it was actually Guillermo del Toro. Like I've had this in the past with you, with you, Dev, actually, with um, two films that you've picked, Cairo and uh, All the Real Girls. I thought because I trust your judgment, and I didn't have a, a positive first response to either of those films. But once I'd I'd kind of discussed it with you and researched it a bit more, I saw them for what they were. And you, you can't always trust your first instincts on things. So I had a similar thing with this, but instead of Deb, it was Guillermo del Toro who was saying how much he loved Candyman, and I love Guillermo del Toro. What Matt's saying there is he doesn't trust me or my pick. He has to hear it from Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> I know. It Also, Matt is suggesting that he's got him on, like, his phone whatsapp he yeah i gave him i gave him a ring no no i saw him on like a countdown i think it was a bravo's scariest moments or something and he was going on about Candyman, and he and he loves it and i then i connected it i thought ah oh, it's just like what he's doing with gothic romance and it's not supposed to be scary in the traditional sense like a uh, scream or anything else they were making around around the time i guess it was a lot there's a lot of freddies going on in 1990 you know late 80s early 90s well, it's, in, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We've picked three basically romantic horrors. I mean, even The Crow. I know we I know we talked that we didn't say it was very established, but we've it's only you who's not a romantic. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm the one who picked, you know, <laughs> just uh, hookers. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> anyway, like this idea of sadness and a horror film together is not something that that really clicks with me. Like this idea, you know, like anger or anxiety or jealousy or shame in a horror film is much more easy for me, much easier for me to accept than, a, than sadness in a horror film. So that, that was something that I had to kind of get over. Um, this idea that it's visually sumptuous and technically accomplished, just like Guillermo del Toro's movies, but it's lacking in some of the big scares. So I, I watched it again just to try and get, try and get over those things and uh, kind of get used to that subtler style of, of uh, horror. Uh, it's not a stalk and slash, you know, uh, and their relationship is more like a gothic romance. And, um, you know, th th there's actually a scene that I don't know if anyone found this, but there's a two minute scene that the studio cut out where they're spinning around together. Um, and Helen is actually supposed to declare her love for the candy man in, in that moment. And, even in 92, Tony Todd said that the studio wanted to cut it out because it was still risque to have uh, an interracial kiss and, and a confession of love between those two characters. So, you know, even in 92, it seems so close, but, but it's a million miles away from where we are now. And that's, again, that's, that shows a, a progression. And, and we've talked a lot about the, the sort of the racial politics baked within, but I am just as fascinated in the social politics and the scene, you know, we've already kind of, Patrick, you wonderfully uh, recited it, but the the scene where they're having dinner and the they're all obviously the academics, white wine, terrible music being played, um, Bernard's having a glass of rosé in the background, and 
and just yeah, I love the way that they think they've they've got it all kind of sussed out. It's like, well, I've done my thesis on him, and uh, and uh, it's, it, he is so wonderfully sniveling. I can't believe he doesn't get it. It's actually surprising to me. But Matt Devlin, you've never seen it. Tell me the moment you knew Xander Berkeley was a turncoat. I always played so fantastically well as well. Like um. His his kind of his his sliminess. Well, for me, it was Stacy that overexit. That she 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 does too much, and even though he's playing it cool, she's doing too much. So I was like, oh, he's a rat. But I mean, it would make sense that she would be the kind of the of the two of them, she would be the one to not be able to keep a lid on it. But um, even with the wife yeah. there, she'd play it cool, I know, right? I don't, I don't know how good there. the actress is because at the end we've got Stacy who has that horrible, unfortunate. Uh, a face that's akin to the guy from Cliffhanger smiling at the end of the road where she keep, she looks <laughs> yeah. like she's just oh. smiling and laughing at Helen appearing. A big laugh at that woman falling through her desk. And of course, you know, she's the stereotype blonde with a see-through t-shirt with a nip showing at the end as well. It's not, it's not really working for Stacey throughout the whole film. Um, and I have written that down because I wanted to be, to find criticism in the film to, to have a, a rounded conversation with you. And that was one of them. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. It's just banter. We, we mentioned, um, like, Friday the 13th and that that last sequence is the only one that to me felt like super kind of Friday the 13th Friday the 13th sequel but we've we've not really talked about the star of the film Virginia Madsen who I'd only just learned last night that it's a brother is Michael Madsen probably should have put those two together um but I didn't uh and isn't it strange that I that I cannot think of another film outside of she turns up in the dreadful haunting film in 99 as a, as a evil right. stepsister for about five is minutes. Your Eric. Well, no, she's in sideways. <laughs> I'll give her that. She's in sideways and she's great in sideways, but yeah, she, she she just, did she just stop acting for like a decade and then come back? Cause I know sometimes, uh, you know, actors do this, but I would have thought this would have been a launching pad for a career, but it never, never really did. She talks about it as well, actually. And so did the producers and the making of, she was kind of like, um, Lynch found her and cast her in Dune for her beauty because he was quite taken with her. And right. there was the idea, like Bernard Rose isn't your traditional director and he, he cast her on merit. Um, uh, and in fact, this story is, she tells a story about him turning up to a trader every day, bringing pizza because he wanted to try and fatten her up a little bit because she was that kind of, um, she caught, yeah, apparently. <laughs> Because, you know, she was a very slim, beautiful model type woman. And in this one, she was very excited because it was an opportunity for her to cut her hair, get in dirty with some bees and do things she's not been asked to do before acting. Because I think there is a, a, you know, a stereotype for her or, or, you know, she'd be cast in a certain way. And this is kind of the um, exemption. Um, so I think there's a bit of that going on, Gally. But she has done a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah, because I, you, in, at this time, I think I said before that horror was slightly in the doldrums. I think it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, there was no elevated horror quotations. You know, I don't like it, but it, I found it strange because all of the scenes that you might think would be overly sexualized, there is a really scene when she does a strip search, um, after she's, uh, it's super uncomfortable. So it's not like, it's not like she, you know, not to make it sound really reductive, but like she just gets them out and that's the kind of actress she is. Um, but it's non, no scenes in this film for a horror film feel like they're, they're playing 
by the the eighties playbook of a slasher, and that's what's surprising. Is as a kid, I put this in the slasher category, and now I very much put it in a completely different space. Well, she she's very strong in that scene, Gally, when she has to strip because her discomfort and confusion and fear and yeah, like I'm I'm well in there. She convinces me, and it's quite an upsetting scene, uh, actually. Take off your brazier. <laughs> Can I please take a shower? Oh, God. Drop it, slide it over to me. Lift up your arms. Lift your left breast. You're right. Remove your underwear. I thought I thought all the cast, you know, even though the the I don't even know the friend's name, but she's in Hard Target and she was in Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And uh, right. I just I think me and you, Devlin, a couple of weeks ago, we rung each other and we were like, "Can we do a '90s like everyone knows who they are, but no one knows who they are?" Character list. Well, I'm adding her to it, but I still don't know her name. Is this this is the uh, we're calling it the Breck and Meyer list, right? <laughs> yeah, the Breck and Meyer list. Indeed. We've managed to like have these very long, very probably lucrative careers. While getting away with it, <laughs> you, they could go into the local Aldi, and no one would, t- no one would turn. Like, I think I've seen them in something. That's it. Let's go and <laughs> let's go and hassle him. No, you leave the lad from Road Trip alone. <laughs> but no, I think I think everyone's really strong in this. I mean, I don't know what you guys thought of. Uh, I mean, especially Matt and Davlin, you'd not seen the film before, but Virginia Madsen's performance outside of the smoking and every scene. Well, I I, I thought um what she did brilliantly was exemplify what I think is like, I don't know, possibly even like the real horror at the core of the film, which is like, I would imagine that at one time or another, most people have had this kind of bizarre, but very real fear of the idea of being wrongly accused of something horrible. And like we said that there's the turning point of her getting smacked in the head mm-hmm. and which would just be terrifying. And she really does. The, the makeup job sells it so well. And the fact that she is so kind of um brassy and, and it's it's great for her character that I'll she bounces back, back Lynn. so quickly back. and that she you know she <laughs> I'm bouncing, have bounced, and she's so kind of um, she's she's kind of uh, irrepressible in a kind of scrappy do sort of way to, to to that extent, and then suddenly it kind of all gets drained because that's when she first meets Happy Man in the in the parking lot, and then from then on she's kind of haunted, and it's so quick that she gets plunged. I didn't. That's that was one of the that was the real turning point was that when uh, uh, she wakes up oh, in God. the apartment. And you realize it's a great what, transition as well. What, she, what she, quote unquote she has done, or at least as far as it, it, it it's quite, it's, uh, I guess so many years removed, it's questionable as to how effective the fake out is that she did or didn't do it, you know, whether it is that she's just gone crazy or that, or that it is actually Candyman using her to create this kind of second, even. Because people are doubting his existence, he's going to use yeah. her to create an even more outrageous myth. And this mm. time, it's under the eyes of uh, of the of the world, essentially, which is you know, not, or at least local camera crews flocking around the um, the police station. You know that um, 
it's it's like he has to ride the fine line between uh he has to be believed as a myth but he can't expose himself so much that he's yeah. actually you know irrefutably real mm. by acting through her and um I, I love this motive as well yeah 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 and and, and it's just the fact that she can kind of pull that off and it's it's when she gets arrested like you were saying the the scene where she's where she's being stri- strip searched and and it's so kind of harrowing and we sit with it for an uncomfortably long time, which I guess in real terms isn't actually that long in screen time. Mm-hmm. It's just that she makes us feel so uncomfortable with her and for her and that we as an audience, we've been, we get placed alongside her so closely. That there's uh, one moment that, that makes me kind of doubt that, um, uh, that, that she is the one committing the crimes. And that's, uh, it's very similar to this, the bit in the shining, uh, where, uh, the freezer room door is unlocked right. by someone. Uh, and it could be, could be Grady. You hear Grady's voice, but, um, you know, there's a theory that it's his son, Danny, that unlocks it in, in order to kind of mm. lure him out into the maze and kill him. But th- yes. there's a bit here when she's <laughs> in the psychiatrist's office and the candy man kills the psychiatrist. Well, first of all, you see on the, on the CCTV yes. that the candy man is not I keep calling him the Candyman. Candyman is not present. He's kind of hovering over her when we see it. And then in, in the CCTV, yeah. he's not present at all, which yeah. suggests it's in her mind. Yeah. But then she's got the restraints on. And after the, uh, Candyman kills the psychiatrist, he also cuts off her restraints and flies out the window. So who does that? And how does she get free of that without the yeah. supernatural that was um, the one moment where I may have inadvertently and probably shouldn't have laughed, but it was mainly because I, th- I completely, <laughs> I completely <laughs> forgot that he just flies out the window. <laughs> you can see, and the, you can cable. see the cable pulling like, him out as well. Is that is that on purpose or was that an accident? <laughs> it's uh, no, it's a uh, skyhook from uh, uh, the Dark Knight. He got skyhooked out. But um, I, I would have thought, Devlin, as well, you would have loved, you know, the initial. I mean. Just to get this out in case I forget, but they like the two cardinal sins: don't kill the dog and never kill, like never kill a baby. I know they don't yeah. kill the baby, but they initially uh, tease mm. it as if they kill the dog and the baby's also got it. But Devlin, you must have loved the Japanese Asian ver- version of blood squirting out that lady's arm when she gets cleaved. I for- I completely forgot about that. It's a proper like. Yes. <laughs> It flies out. Look out of his neck as well. There's a squirt there, which is quite yeah, there is. satisfying. There's, there's even a squirt when she gets hit in the head by the fake Candyman. Oh yeah, yeah, that's there's really even good. another one there. There's, it happens all the time, and she gets hooked slightly behind her head, and it kind of trickles yeah. down her neck. There's a lot of mm. blood spurts, and they, they, apparently the the sensors had more of a problem with the blood spurts than anything else. But Matt, you said like there was not like big scares in the film so much for you first time around, but for me, like the hairs on the back of my neck and my arms go up every time I hear Anne-Marie screaming for her absent child. And there's another element there of fear that's given to the audience because it's it's very good kind of jump cut almost from the parking lot straight to the midst of a murder scene, a dog's head, blood everywhere, screaming. And that uh, the actress who plays Anne-Marie, that really gets to me. Like, it, really. It's a lack of, of a visceral horror for me that there's just whatever I was used to, it, it, mm. it just didn't, didn't do it. There's something there in what you're saying. I think it is kind of harrowing. And also I should say the end, it, I did find harrowing, uh, with the, with the bonfire and it kind of, it kind of has a Wicker Man feel to it in more ways than one actually, because Wicker Man kind of has a, a kind of a, 
a, a dullness to some of it as well but it has this big harrowing ending so my, my first experience was was kind of like that i just missed some of that visceral horror i don't, I don't it's very hard to explain well, i'm probably not gonna, um <laughs> again gore and and uh horror and scares are kind of different like gore is sure. more about disgust for me and suspense and horror and, and so, being so frightened disgust, did you get different. anything with the bees in the mouth and on the well i'm well. scared of bees and i i still wasn't scared of of this film so wow. i i don't i don't know i i got a bit of disgust from the bees because it's kind of creepy mm-hmm. but um and i was amazed by those images because I, again i hate cgi and just the idea that they did that for real and uh, it's fantastic it looks so cool very quickly they had this bee, special bee guy on set and they'd only use mm. bees that are like less than 12 years old 12 years fuck's sake 12 hours old <laughs> <laughs> because they don't really have stings or effective <laughs> things yeah uh, those teenage <laughs> bees are a nightmare <laughs> <laughs> Um, which helps and these queen pheromones to keep on the body with the cool, the coolest thing about it is tiny Todd had, um, organized a kind of clause in his contract that every time he got stung by a bee, you get a thousand dollars and he was stung 23 <laughs> times. Oh, I would have been doing it on purpose. I would have grabbed on and been like that. <laughs> it, apparently he had a mouth guard in and one of the bees yeah. got behind his mouth guard and it was oh. like creeping down his throat, but he kept going with the take. And they mm. cut it at the end. And, and also he said when they put the bees in his mouth, he had to wait for the director to do all of his bullshit with the hypnotism stuff that he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> so he had these bees in his mouth. Yeah. He's very, he's very dedicated to the film. Uh, even in interviews today, Tony Todd says it's his favorite character film role that he's ever been involved in. He's great. I love Tony Todd. Their chemistry is, is good though, isn't it? Uh, the director had them do like mm. waltz dancing, uh, classes together to, to, um, bring them closer together with, with them a romantic element. And I do buy into the whole seduction thing towards the end. I, I quite like how Candyman is, he keeps returning with, he doesn't quite, you know, um, sorry, I'm not saying this very well, but, you know, he goes to hell and he tells her, be my victim, be with me, be immortal, but then goes away, commits another atrocity, comes back, seduces her a little bit more, goes away, another horror. I, I like that element to the film as well. Well, I, I wanted to talk for a sec about um, his motivation. Like, why does Candyman do what he does? Because that seemed to confuse a lot of people, as, as far as I could tell from researching it. Um, he never... Sorry, go on. Dublin mentioned it earlier, because um, the motivation I found really strong in that he essentially just wants people to live in fear and not forget him uh, as a vengeance kind of ploy well there's this other thing that i found there's um uh, kind of a video essay on on youtube from the what is anti-logic or what is anti-logic and it's this question of why he does what he does and this this guy brought up this idea that he's killing for art because he's an artist he's a tortured artist he wants to be immortalized through his creations like even after death and uh, this idea that his hand was removed, um, because that was his painting hand, um, these guys reduced him to no one, like someone with no artistic talent. Uh, and the hook becomes the new tool for him creating art. And and then even the bees ties in. It's like be- bees are the most creative insect. They make honey, they make wax, they make uh, honeycombs. And there's also a quote about yes. um what is blood for if not for shedding i think it is 
And it, the idea is if, 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 again, this isn't me, this is from, from the video. Uh, it's what is paint for, if not for painting, you know, if you just substitute that and, and just think about it from an artistic point of view, he's kind of orchestrating his own legend and his reputation and kind of protect, protecting and controlling a legacy. And this idea that he was a cultured man moving in these elite circles, uh, as, as his legend goes. And, uh, art is the best way to influence other people and make them think in a certain way. And, you know, that, so it, again, it kind of ties into that. I, I found that quite interesting and that actually sort of flavored one of my views on it, but rather than being just a, a mysterious thing that we never quite get to grips with, this idea of him killing for art rather than vengeance it made it slightly more interesting for me. Because, of course, we all, I have to take you back to the romantic element that I keep blathering on about, but it is revealed essentially that the white woman that he was killed for does resemble Helen in a mural uh, upstairs. So there yeah. is that uh, element to his motive as well, that it's kind of a full circle for him to be did, together with someone. Did you see Helen as, sorry, sorry, Gali, did you see Helen as a kind of a, a spiritual reincarnation? Of, of the, the, the white woman, yeah. maybe amuse if it's an artistic thing. Yeah, totally amuse. When Candyman kills the psychiatrist, which mm. is almost like a, uh, I don't know, like a hurrah moment that we finally get to see Candyman kill someone because it's yeah. been threatening quite a lot in the film. I do like that they hold off on that. What What are we all thinking? What dreams versus reality in here? Is it completely Helen's demise uh, and mental breakdown in the film that it's all her? Or do, you know, I think there's enough in the film that, that creates this conversation that I quite enjoy yeah. that is Candyman real, is he not? And along with the psychiatrist's death, there's the feeding of the baby with the honey mm -hmm. that we we see him do as well, which kind of helps with that um, element. But I, I do like also the way little Jake, who we've not spoken about yet, but when he's rallying people to the bonfire, he's like, I saw his hook, I saw his hook. And of course, it's it's mm -hmm. her, Helen, holding the hook, which, which is quite cool. I just wanted to, to see what your final thoughts on that element to the film was. Well, for me, it it made me think of Rosemary's Baby. Uh, when we were leading up to um, writing our film, The Self-Seers, uh, the short film that we just did, we looked at Rosemary's Baby because it perfectly straddles that line between is it in her imagination or is it really happening you can really analyze that film and just say she's just crazy. Like none of this is actually real. Um, and Candyman kind of walks that line too. We mentioned that there is one example there of the supernatural probably being, uh, at play to get her out of those restraints. Mm. Cause there's, there's really no other explanation. Unlike the shining, there's really no other explanation as to how she could have got out of that. I also like the idea that it could be completely uh, realistic, completely real with no supernatural elements at all. So I, I kind of struggled with that moment because I really wanted it to play as both. And you could, you could kind of choose your uh, adventure in a way, whatever you thought it should be. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't come to a final conclusion other than because it has to be supernatural there. Uh, Candyman has to be real and he has to have got her out of those restraints. And therefore it kind of plays into that idea of him killing for, for his art. And I, and yeah, I think, yeah. and, and then I really like that. So if I'm reading it in a certain way, I would personally go for that one. 
there's also like the swarm of bees after he dies. You know, there's a physical element there, and yeah, which I quite like that imagery. I get whose perspective is that? I mean, we have to assume that that's everyone's perspective, I guess, because there's nothing really to suggest that it's hers necessarily. So, yeah. I think I'm with you on that. Yeah. Personally, I just like to read it that way because that that just makes it more satisfying for me. If they are real and we are seeing it from a, from, from the perspective of the, um, Mm. of the crowd surrounding the fire, which is camera's position, then that would explain everyone then later comes to her funeral and kind of almost canonizes her in a way. And they, you know, they paint the mural of her. What does he want at the end when he's trying to get everyone into the bonfire together? Obviously the baby is representative of the, the, the white woman that he was seeing that led to, led to his death was pregnant. So that's tied in there. What Gally was saying was, was exactly mm. right. I think before about they, they should, Virginia Madsen's uh, Helen should have had more, to, to do with with uh, wanting a child or being more connected with a child, we do have the scene where she she meets the lady in the in the block of flats and uh, she's very maternal towards the baby. There, it's it's, it's perhaps enough. Well, in the bonfire, he's been wronged, hasn't he? So he's writing a wrong to himself, and it was it was his love that was ended shortly in his life. So he's he's now found his muse again, and and wants to you know he's. How long now? It was a hundred, hundred years. So now he wants that kind of peace and love, and he's found someone who can grant him that. And mm. if they die together in the flames, and he says the ashes will become one, that's what he wants. He wants that family element, really. And and the mural that appears of Helen on the wall at the very end over the credits. Well, that ties into the people attending the funeral. It's a solidarity thing. They've all ah. been terrorized by Candyman throughout for years and, and fear-mongering, but they recognize that she saved Anthony, the baby. She got rid of Candyman and killed him in the fire. That's a swarm of bees. Of so now the murals to her because she's now their savior. You saved them from Candyman. Oh, I see. Patrick, I disagree. I, I very much read it as, uh, as, as far as Candyman. I didn't see him seeking peace i saw Sorry, it i think as, i think uh, you're right it's like, a bit like wingu say that where not peace but togetherness and then to create their legacy together onwards but yeah i, I yeah the, the, one of the beautiful things about the the japanese ring or ringu is that they mm-hmm. think they're helping by you know sort of getting to the the root cause of the issue but it's the whole idea is no it's it's perpetual. It's evil. It cannot be stopped. No good deed goes unpunished in horror. That's one of the things yeah. they always say. So, so yeah. by solving the mystery and getting to the root of it, but it, it doesn't solve the the kind of the, the the posthumous anger. It's it's not that it's like a rational thing that can be you know solved and then it's done. It's it's uh, mm. which I guess ties into the idea that we were talking about a, a while back, which is that. Perhaps part of the very charged casting and the the idea of there being um, an African American antagonist, which is that it's it's an echo of the of the kind of the historical horrors. He's almost an antihero as well, isn't he? Antagonist, antihero. What what did you think? Dreams, reality. Like, what, what what do you think? I didn't get the sense that the film was ever really falling on that side of the line, much as, as Matt was just saying, basically that was the exact same point for me as well, that of course, when they showed the video, you would see her just ranting and hallucinating to herself. Um, but as soon as he turns up, kills the, um, the psychiatrist and then releases her. Yeah. I, I agree with Matt. There's, there is at that point, no other explanation, but I, I read it more that, um, he was continually putting her in situations whereby even though it was him that was committing these acts, 
and that she was being, you know, falsely accused and dragged down in his wake and that he was, you know, destroying the life that she'd built for herself and that he was breaking her down until she had no other choice than to be with him. Uh, that was when, when she escaped and then when she went back to the apartment and she saw the, um, the, the younger, the younger model that she'd been replaced with, uh, painting her apartment this hideous shade of pink. <laughs> um, the way that she was, had kind of snapped and that, you know, she was very, very much threatening them. Um, it, it was more that it, that it was working basically that, that, the plot that he had, that the Candyman had laid out for her was working, that he was getting ready to just shed whatever last vestiges of, uh, this, the thin kind of grasp that she had on, on her real life was, was now gone. And it's, at that point, she, she just says, right, I have nothing. I have nothing left. What's the matter, Trevor? Scared of something. <laughs> I hate the color scheme. Trevor, wait till I got out before you told me! Helen. You knew I was never coming out, didn't you? I think we should call the hospital. What do we think of the score? Because it's, uh, you know, we've talked about Caprini Green being a character and this music is pretty damn haunting. And again, I had parallels with Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, the, the, the kind of nursery, not nursery rhyme, but the kind of, the, it's, it felt very familiar and melodic. Well, Gally, I've been listening to it for the last week solidly in a kind of Helen dream state. Uh, yeah, like it's hypnotized me. I keep playing it on a loop because Helen's theme, especially with that simple piano, this almost, uh, like nursery rhyme melody to it. That's, I said it before, like at the time when I first saw this, I was, I was in love with Edward Scissorhands and Danny Elfman's music was a big part of my growing up as a kid, not really realized what I was listening to and took it as the film because watching it now, I really took to the music. And then I started to think, where did I know Philip Glass from and where did I find him? And I remember loving a bit of his music in Watchmen, which may have been the same bit of music that was in Grand Theft Auto. If you found the rights radio station in the car and it used to be this really operatic, right. huge music as you were driving around killing motherfuckers. And I used to love that bit in Grand Theft Auto a lot. And that's, how I like uh, the Philip Glass stuff, but this is really adds to the fantasy element to the kind of urban legend uh, stuff to it, Gally. And I, I love this score a lot. Well, the, the, the director says uh, that the that horror scores usually tell you when you're supposed to be scared. And that's like saying to him, he said, that's like saying, well, you won't be scared by this. So that therefore we have to give you extra. And I think th- that's true, but I didn't really find the, the glass score particularly scary either it's more kind of atmospheric uh but then i thought well how scary is tubular bells without 
the exorcist connotation. It's the same kind of thing. You know, it's, it's the connection to the story and, and the imagery of the movie. Yeah. So the, the more I heard it, the more it, it worked on me. So again, it's a case of not being uh, over the moon with it initially, but then it, it kind of really, really worked on me. And uh, it, that's kind of, you know, that's I, kind of I how I feel about Candyman. I find there's a menace to its playfulness, Matt. Uh, you know, the, the juxtaposition mm. of the playful music and kind of sweet tones compared to what you're seeing on screen. Um, that's it. That's exactly it. When it's juxtaposed with yeah. what you're seeing, it, it becomes something more than it would be on its own. And that's, that's true of any great score, I think. Uh, how about you, Gally? What did you think about the, <laughs> I'm trying to get you into your Philip Glass story. <laughs> a couple of years ago, uh, I went to New York with, uh, with my fiance and we had got tickets to see Philip Glass. <laughs> and I'd convinced, I'd said to her, listen, Philip Glass, I was like, hun, Philip Glass is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. And I was, I was very much like you mentioned, Patrick, referring to, you know, I, I know I'm not a big fan of the Watchmen film, but that particular sequence with his music is incredible. Um, and I've, I've heard of his, he's done a couple of films and I'd forgotten that he'd done Candyman. So I just sort of said, listen, it will be a right experience. Uh, <laughs> Carnegie Hall, best acoustics in the world. So they say, mm-hmm. I won't tell you how much it costs, but it wasn't cheap. And, uh, it was honestly one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> because he was playing a, I didn't check what he was playing. So I thought he'd be like playing the greatest hits. So I was like, oh, that'd be fantastic. Listen to Philip Glass. No, he, was... he doesn't. He's a real greatest hits type of guy. No, he isn't. No, he is not. And, uh, he played his seminal first ever piece of long orchestra, which was about 50 minutes. No, it was an hour and 50. It was an hour and 50 because after 10 minutes, Danielle looked at me and went, we're leaving. And I was like, ah, oh, not, <laughs> not, not what, not after what I've just dropped for these. So, um, <laughs> so we, so we stayed and we were in, you know, we were properly dressed the nines. This is what it was. It was this. Dun, 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 dun. Ah, oh, <laughs> it, and it went on. It was a, it, it, no, no, there was no melody. It was a drone. And then the, you know what the worst thing was? Cause everyone had obviously dropped some, some serious money to watch this nonsense <laughs> is, uh, afterwards, one person, as I was leaving, cause me and Danielle, we were just laughing because of how bad it was. One person went, I was a little bit worried after the first 20 minutes, but by the end, I just didn't want it to end. I was like, shut up. Shut up with your <laughs> utter <laughs> nonsense. What's your favorite Philip Glass album? I'd have to say the best of Philip Glass. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, the only Philip Glass I have is a, a Chronos Quartet put out a, a, an album of, of his film scores. So you'd have loved that gig, wouldn't you, Dan? Well, Chronos Quartet, the, the stuff that they picked was, was great. They used, uh, uh, some of the scores from, uh, Mishima. Oh yeah. That, that's where, um, Bernard Rose knew him from and wanted him to do the it's film. It's incredible. It's an incredible piece of music. So, um, that didn't uh, get played that uh, night. Just letting you know. The only good one. <laughs> Shall we do it? Shall we go into our summaries? Um, I mean, I dare any of you to actually say Candyman five times, but at least, at least tell us uh, your your final thoughts. So, Patrick, listen, I'll start with you. It was your choice. So, final thoughts on Candyman, and do you recommend it for our listeners 
this hello rewind yeah i absolutely do recommend it that's why i I put it as my pick um i was really i I always get quite glad when some of you haven't seen films that that you pick i think there's quite quite a wonderful thing in that so you can all talk about it fresh perspective so i was glad that devlin and matt hadn't seen it um it for me it's that thing i spoke about that it's an everlasting film for me uh it had such an impression on me as possibly the scariest film uh alongside dark crystal where when i was a kid that really res- really stayed with me and had an impression on me tony todd candyman is for me iconic um and some of the imagery especially what matt spoke about the the bees uh the bees not the bees um in, in their mouths and that seduction and and helen giving himself to her there i just it's unbelievable to watch it's amazing uh and it it, there's other imagery in it when he's murdering the psychiatrist the dog's head uh, the the swarm of bees the close-up the aerial shot at the beginning matt as well i take a lot from this film visually as well as from a storytelling point of view because i find it very layered um we, when we were speaking about the fly, I said I was too young to see the fly at the time. And uh, I still stand by that, considering that I always thought a Brundle fly was an actual species of fly. I didn't realize it was his name. Um, so I didn't read the film very well. And I think it was the same with Candyman, because now that I've grown up, it's far more rewarding for me as a horror, as a multi-layered um, racial, social, economic kind of film that you can read into it's amazing that it went from liverpool to chicago as you said but it seems to fit perfectly it's such a great setting for it um i love the score that adds to it and uh just the gothic romantic element of horror in here is what really draws me in and kind of enchanted me really charmed me actually um not to the degree that like galley watches the fly as a comfort film at night uh (laughs) bizarrely I have a few special mentions to the nurse who stuck the needle in Helen's arm when she goes into the hospital, which is the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen. And we haven't we haven't really spoken about little Jake that much. Um, played by Dijon Guy, who is the most serious little kid, but I really I really think there's something in his performance that talks adds to the urban legend that the uh, aspect of the film that we talked about. And um, yeah, it really it stands up for me. I, I like this film very much. Um, Devlin, please. What do you think? Um, well, it was a very different film to the one that I thought I'd watched, <laughs> which, which is which is always great. Um, it's a lot more complex and, but kind of I guess more focused than I'd thought. Like I like the way that it quite claustrophobically sticks us to a POV character who is being tormented, and and she may although the film never really lends itself much opportunity to actually buy into the possibility, be going insane. There's social political elements of the film. They're kind of woven into the fabric of the story and they're very specific, which is great. Like you were saying that, you know, dealing with, um, with a very specific time and place, 1992 in, in, uh, in that specific part of Chicago, it turns out that the, the, the murder rate in Cabrini green uh, peaked in 1992. So it really was very timely. Uh, it's, it's extremely specific, but it's not quite so heavy handed that it kind of overwhelms the, the really tense gothic atmosphere and some genuinely good scares. 
um, or really like the story itself. Um, it's like a really interesting example of like a self-reflexive fable. So sort of understands the power of, of stories. Uh, it, it understands it within the narrative and then to us as an audience. So um, coming up with something as simple and, and kind of memeable as standing in front of the mirror and saying that the word Candyman five times, you know, or Helen. You, yeah. Or indeed Helen. <laughs> Helen. 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 <laughs> it's not quite as evocative, is it? When he says Helen yeah. compared to Candyman. So it kind of, it exceeds that sort of mid, like mimetic quality and becomes a really kind of coherent, mature and really, really quite unsettling fable. Like the, the bloodletting is kind of patiently doled out for maximum impact. And the whole thing's grounded really well, both in like the academic pursuit of the folktale and in the setting that it takes place in. So, um, uh, I guess the kind of, um, Matt, it was something that you mentioned earlier, but also it's something that really stuck with me from the episode that we did together where you talked about mythology is quite important. Um, I actually, I actually liked the mythology of this and I liked the way that it was presented in that basically it just left you with a lot of, um, space for you to project onto. Um, you see the more in, into the sequels that you go, I'm sure they probably explained away every single individual nuance to the story and kind of ground into any sort of power that it has. Whereas, you know, if you leave people with the idea of something broader, a, a film that's going to live in the imagination for a lot longer. Um, this really did stick with me. It was, uh, it was great. It was, it was great to finally watch it. So, um, and for a Halloween film, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of awesome. It's, it's got weight to it and it's, it's got, uh, it's got a real power to it, but it, it doesn't, it's not above still being a good horror film, I guess. Um, I do feel like it's unlike any of the horror I've seen, Dublin. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know whether I, I stopped there to see if any of you agree. But yeah, no, I agree for, yeah. be, for better or worse, actually. Yeah. I, I kind of agree. It's, uh, it, it is, it is kind of unique and kind of unusual. And, uh, uh, and I think, you know, you watch it on Halloween and then you dare yourself to, to recreate the. Oh, I remember the, being in that bathroom shitting my gray school trousers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, um, as, as a fellow first time viewer, um, uh, Matt, what did you make of it? Well, this is really split because I have all of my notes in front of me from my first two negative uh, reactions before Guillermo del Toro pulled me back to, uh, you know, liking Candyman. So I'm going to go slightly negative. Uh, I've got this thing about it being a, a recursive horror, this idea that it's a horror about horror. And, you know, there are other films that kind of tackle that and they kind of disappear up their own, you know, backsides. And, uh, this one kind of walks that line quite well. It, it aspires to be something quite subversive and clever. Uh, and if it doesn't pull it off, it ends up being pretentious. So I, I don't quite know where it falls. I mean, I've been really positive about it when we've talked about it. So I, I guess it kind of works for me now. Um, wow. it's not full of itself. It's not nodding and winking at the camera, like something like, uh, Wes Craven's new nightmare. It's, kind of it's self-referential um but in a slightly better way i think um so the, the question was for me like why didn't it click at first and 
the idea of it being a very different type of horror and it just not quite being my cup of tea is is the main thing. Uh, I had some problems with the characters. I had some problems with the, the slightly oddly heightened performances. Uh, and this, the really damning thing was that the horror wasn't really effective for me. And I wish that I'd seen it younger. It, it just made me think I wish I'd seen it when I was a kid. Mm. And uh, it had really got under my skin at that age. And I think, you know, it really would have, you know, uh, it, and as a result, it played a little bit melodramatic and that the, the romantic aspect of it wasn't my favorite thing. I, again, I love Guillermo del Toro, but his, his horror films, for, for want of a better word, are, are kind of lacking in that respect too, I think. They, they lean more towards, um, uh, this, this gothic romance. Um, so, and, and this one kind of also relied on a few jump scares, um, there's a, there's a few jump scares with the Doberman dog and uh, I forget the others, but there's probably four or five. There's actually a really good one with, with Trevor. Is it Trevor? And, uh, and Helen, and he kind of creeps up into her room when she's uh, sleeping. And there's a very good kind of misdirection there and a good jump scare. But I, I think that's down to me looking for tropes of the, of the genre and being disappointed when I didn't find them. So, uh, yeah, that's where I was with that. Um, it's, it's dealing with moral, spiritual, historical, racial, sociological, psychological, and supernatural stuff. Hmm. And for me, it just attempts too much. And it, it was only, at least initially, it was only grazing each topic and never really fully exploring it in, in a really focused way. And I, I still think that its most interesting ideas aren't developed sufficiently. I think there's a lot of stuff that you could do with race that wasn't tackled. And in particularly, in particular, the idea of him being, you know, son of a slave. And, and we've mentioned America's history and the idea of it being a revenge tale, which, which was what I thought it was initially. And before I got into the idea of him killing for art, which really kind of salvaged a lot of those problems for me because once I saw it through that kind of prism, it, it really flipped my view of the film and, I, and the, the vengeance thing became unnecessary really. So for me, it's a risky recommend because I really didn't go for it at first, but I will recommend it. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, I mentioned it before about, you know, your first instincts on things can be altered if you really take a different view of it or, or listen to other people speaking about it. So that's maybe that's kind of what the podcast is about. And maybe that that's why this was, well, I, I, I think you helped more because we really got into it, didn't we? But um, speaking about it with other people really is, is an enlightening experience. So I, if that's what we're doing on these, on these shows, then that's a really cool, cool thing. So it wasn't a knockout for me, but I, I will recommend it. And thank you, Patrick, for picking a really interesting film. Gally, how about you, sir? I really enjoyed going back to it. Uh, I, I, I kind of teed myself up really for my summary, which is that I had categorized Candyman as a kind of subpar slasher, uh, that felt like a bit of a Freddy knockoff. And, and it's, it is more than that. Uh, I will caveat sort of my praise throughout this discussion with, I do think the, the sort of, the modern takes on Candyman might be inflated a little bit because it's a bit of an outlier. There's some subversion there. I mean, I never really mentioned it in discussion, but I, I saw some shining. 
I saw some Texas Chainsaw Massacre with the photo, uh, with the way that the flashes were going off when she's taking photos. I saw some Silence of the Lambs. You know, I think Bernard Rose knows this genre and was really like in his sandbox was like, right, I'm going to nod, wink, reference, but in a very subtle and, and, and a, a really controlled and measured way. And I didn't, I haven't really expressed it, but for whatever you think of Candyman, I think it's a really well made film. Uh, I think the filmmaking is, is, is up there. Um, you're right. Those opening shots are just incredible. Um, but I found it to be consistent throughout. Um, and, and the main, the main thing that just surprised me is that this did work for me. I, I was, I was less scared now as a 34 year old man watching it, but it, I, I found it to be really moving and very engaging and almost like a spiritual experience, which, um, I was not prepared for. Um, and I, and I think that, that, be, you know, that's down to all the elements working. So it did work for me, but I do think, uh, someone new to this, um, I think this will, you know, this will scare people, especially if you're watching it, you know, on Halloween, uh, you know, this week and, you know, with the lights out and, you know, I dare you to say Candyman five times in the mirror after you've seen it. It'll be interesting to see if people take it up. I mean, I'm not going to do it now. You can guarantee I'm going straight to bed. So, um, yeah, they'll, you know, we'll be back to our normal programming, which I believe will be point break. Um, however, we never know. We might sneak a bargain bin in or indeed a pull in focus or indeed. Who knows? We don't know. We don't really plan these things too far ahead. Anyway, so we will say our goodbyes, but it's been an absolute pleasure. I've thoroughly enjoyed delving into the the pumpkin head and going into these Halloween films. I think I've, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was delicious. Dublin, I think this is your uh, creation, the Halloween wine, with Matt's uh, uh, creative influences. So I really want to thank you both for it because I've really enjoyed this series uh, as an idea and I hope we do it again next year. Yeah, let's do it again. I don't think I have an outro line, but all I will say is if anyone is still with us from the beginning, can we please all highlight the fact that Ted Raimi is the worst badass ever? <laughs> it's Gally in Glasgow signing out. Stay safe, everyone. Man door, hand hook, car door. It's Devlin in London. <laughs> What's the matter, sweetie pie? Did you make another little boo-boo? It's Patrick from London. Thank you. Believe in me. Be my victim. <laughs> It's Matt in South Korea. Oh, brilliant. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. And we'll catch you next time on the Rewind Movie Podcast. Shut up.